We're also trying to put a hopeful look at this book at the end of our Bible, the book of Revelation, and we're a few weeks in now, and we're talking about, in the end, a new beginning. So even though this is the end of the Bible, we're trying to put a hopeful look at that, and I think it's not hard to do with the words we find here from John. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of chapters today, four and five. Just know it is not going to be nearly as long as last week. Thank you for hanging with us. I know that was long. We had a lot of ground to cover. We're covering these two chapters. It won't be nearly as long, but it's a perfect sermon for a Sunday morning because I think the best way to summarize these two chapters is worship and the Word. And when I think about Sunday morning, that's exactly what I think about. Coming together to worship and coming together to hear from and share the Word of God. So let's dive right in with Revelation 4 and 5, starting with verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Let's try to picture John. We just got the message to the church. Now he looks up and he sees something in heaven like this, this open doorway. First, how bizarre, right, this must have looked this open door into, we don't even know, right? But as I think about this, I tried to imagine what, if I was John, would you actually go in? It's one thing to see the open door, but it's another thing to actually be like, I'm going to go through that door, even though I have no idea what may be on the other side, right? But he did, in his vision, he goes in through the door. In verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. So fortunately, John goes in. This is a huge thing I don't want us to miss. John says yes to God. This is a big deal. We're talking about this a lot on Wednesday night in our discipleship class. One of the most important things you can do is say yes to God. To whatever he's calling you to do. And maybe it's not an open door up in the sky. Maybe there's something else he's leaning on you. It's whispering in your ear to do. Say yes. And yeah, I get God's in charge and he gets all the glory and he gets all the credit, but he uses us if we say yes, if we get in the boat, if we go through the open door. And fortunately, John says yes, and he gets to see some pretty amazing stuff. Now, before we talk about that stuff, I want to talk about how this is so much better than science fiction. Do we have any science fiction fans in the house? Yeah, absolutely, right? There's something about just the images and some of the concepts that we find there. But think of what science fiction is. It's scientific ideas that are extrapolated and expanded and made into fictional stories. This isn't science fiction. This is faith nonfiction. This is something that we believe in our faith to be 100% true. This is true. That this is real. There is actually an open door. And what's behind that open door is true, and he's real, and it's God. And what he sees is a throne. Now, I don't know that it looked exactly like this. That's not the point. The point is that there's a throne. This throne is a political statement, folks, and I don't want you to miss it. The first thing he comes upon is a throne with one seated on it, and it's not the emperor. Remember who John's writing this to, a bunch of people who think that the ruler, some even considered the ruler to be divine. And John writes this, he says, oh, no, no, no. That throne doesn't matter. The real throne is up in heaven. And that message, that message applies just as well today. That there is a throne up in heaven and God's on it. 
And it doesn't matter who is in power on earth today. Not in our cities, not in our states, not in our country, not anywhere in the world, nowhere in the universe. There is one ruler. And he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and this is his word and this is his guide. And that should guide everything we do, how we vote, how we act, how we speak, how we listen, everything. Because he, God, is on that throne. Now, what's the deal with all the mystery? You'll notice he sees this throne, and there's kind of some brightness, and there's some light, but we can't see all of it. I was actually talking with someone this week, and they totally agreed that probably the reason for all this mystery is we probably couldn't even handle the reality of how God looks, right? I'm just trying to picture, like, what would it be like to be before the face of God? I don't think we can even handle it. And so we get this mystery, right? But I think it's just for now. Later, right, we will be able to see clearly, and we will be able to handle it. But now, we can't even fully handle it, so we see it with these bright lights and some mystery around it. In verse 3, described, the one seated there on that throne looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Okay, so jasper and carnelian, they're both very precious stones. Uh, first, jasper, it's a very fine-grained silica, it's deposited from circulating water. And I like that. Think about living water, moving water. It's a refined stone, and it's opaque, which means you can't see through it. Okay, it's solid. Uh, carnelian, a precious stone as well, and it is ruby. It's redder in color, and we know that those two stones, those two images are somehow on that throne. And if you're curious, in chapter 21, you're going to see these two stones pop up again, and they're going to be involved with the creation of the new Jerusalem. Okay, so look for Jasper and Carnelian to show up again. Verse 4, around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. So we don't just have one throne, okay, we've got a whole bunch of other ones. And sitting on those other ones are some people, some elders in white robes and with crowns on their heads. We're going to learn more about them as we go on. But many people ask, who are these 24? Who are the elders? Okay? They are not angels. If they were angels, they would actually be described as angels. These are human symbols. They're supposed to symbolize something in us in our humanity. Different theories on this, okay? Some think that they represent the 24 classes of priests in 1 Chronicles 24. Uh, we don't know exactly who they are. We know that they're in charge because they're on a throne. We do know that they're rulers, they are leaders, okay? I love Wilfred Harrington's theory that they are the heavenly counterpart of the earthly church. And so what he pictures there is representatives, like ambassadors of the church on earth, up in heaven before the throne of God, worshiping God. But we don't know exactly. We know they're human symbols, and we know that they're leading or ruling something, okay? Verse 5, coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. So we've got lightning, we've got thunder, and then we've got some other stuff, some sevens, right? Some torches and some spirits. What's the deal with these seven spirits? Let's not confuse them first with the Holy Spirit, okay? If you want to get a glimpse of who they are, we've got to look back at the book of Zechariah. Um, you should know about Revelation in general, and this part specifically, that it pulls a lot from the book of Zechariah. So I would encourage you guys, while we're going through Revelation, reread Zechariah. 
it'll be very uh, revealing for a lot of the images we're going to see. But let's look at uh, Zechariah 4.2 specifically. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it. There's seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Weird image, right? We get the sevens over and over again, the lamps and the lips. So let's keep reading. Verse 6, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we can learn here that these spirits, one of the things the spirit does is it's how God works in the world. Not by power or might as we tend to think about it, but by God's spirit. The spirit is what God uses to work in the world. Now let's keep reading there in Zechariah 4 verse 10 says, for whoever had despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So these seven spirits reflect the eyes of God, the view of God, his ability to see into the world. So picture God's ability to see into the world, into your lives, into all corners of the earth. That's what these spirits represent. They're how God works and how God sees everything that's going on in his creation. Verse 6, let's continue with the theme of seeing. And in front of the throne, there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. And you can't miss here, right? We've got a sea of glass. It's beautiful and clear like crystal. And then you've got these creatures with all kinds of eyes. So what you have here is all this discussion about seeing and, and vision, right? Let me put this in perspective for why this matters. If you think about our ability to see, 35% of the human population has 20-20 vision. 35%. For the rest of us, we don't. And whether we have glasses or contacts or laser surgery, right, we as a people tend to struggle with how we see. Not with God. Not with God. What this is saying to us is that at the end when we are with God, there will be absolutely no vision problem. God sees perfectly. Those who are with him see perfectly. Imagine that. No waking up in the morning putting glasses on or contacts in. Always being able to see. And not just out of these eyes, eyes, right? The things that we actually see physically, but to see in our mind, to be able to see and understand completely and clearly who God is, why we're here, why he created, what life is all about. With God, we can see perfectly. Verse 7. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And I'm sure it looked just like this, right? <laughs> so maybe not. This is the Brick Bible's spin on what it looked like. I show this to you for one reason. I want you to notice the features on these four creatures, okay? Tons and tons of eyes, okay? So it's all about seeing, and they've got all these wings, all of these wings, all right? And there's four of them. What's the deal with these four creatures? If you look back in the book of Ezekiel, these four creatures will show up there. Ezekiel 1, 10 to 11. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human being, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. So when John's writing this, he's sharing this. This is, these are images that would have been very popular and known to the people 
who would have seen them, and they also would have thought of something when they heard about these four creatures. And what they would have thought about is that these four creatures represent the best of the best. These are the best that God made in a particular category of creation. So you think about wild animals, and you think about who is the best of the wild animals. Most of us would agree it's the lion. We think about the king of the jungle, right? And most believe that the lion was absolutely the king, the best of all of God's wild animals. Think about domesticated animals. And most believe that the best and the strongest one of those was the ox. And so we have the ox. The human reflects the best of God's creation. You get that right from early in the book of Genesis, right? The very good of God's creation. And then the eagle. The eagle represents the best of all the flying creatures. And the reason for that is these characteristics, these qualities we tend to associate with these four. Okay, so you think about a lion. Lions are incredibly brave, and they're intensely fierce. People talk about the roar of the lion, okay? Then there's the ox. Oxes, believe it or not, are known for being quite patient and quite strong, all right? So I am definitely not in the ox category. Humans were known as being quite intelligent and wise, notwithstanding some of those that we meet on a day-to-day basis, right? And eagles, known for being aspiring, meaning they flew very, very high and very, very fast, okay? So we have each of those four creatures, and then I also want you to notice about those characteristics. All of those characteristics could be used to describe God. Every single one of them. Brave, fierce, patient, strong, intelligent, wise, aspiring, fast. It doesn't limit God. God's beyond that, right? But these are characteristics that God reflects, and they reflect these four creatures that are right there at the base of the throne of the Lord. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So these four creatures, which I don't know about you, I'd find them to be quite intimidating, are singing. And they're singing and they're praising God. I'm just trying to picture this. Right? These creatures are always doing three things. They're always looking, because they got all these eyes, right? They're always ready to fly, they're ready to take off, and they're worshiping God. And as I thought about those characteristics, I thought, shouldn't that describe us? Always seeing, always looking around us for what God might want us to notice, or who God might want us to notice. Always ready to fly, always ready to take off, always ready to go where God wants us to go. Always worshiping at all times, whether that's singing, praying, creating, whatever that looks like for you, always worshiping God. And we get the opportunity tonight, right, to come together and to do that, just worshiping the Lord. That's what we were created to do. Verses 9 and 10. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who's seated on the throne. And worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing. So every time these four creatures worship, it causes these 24 elders to do something, and they cast their crowns. Now, casting crowns has become known to many, right, as the name of a very popular Christian band. But it reflects something that was actually going on, okay? What was happening is when a king would come before an emperor, the king would take off their crown and they would cast it forward. 
And what they were doing is acknowledging that they were king in that place. All right, so a king is a ruler of a country or an area, and they'd go before an emperor who was a ruler of a greater land or area. And to reflect that the emperor was in charge, the king would take off that crown and throw it. They'd cast it and say, no, no, you are in charge. And that's what these elders are doing. They're taking off their crowns. They're saying, no, 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 God, you are the one who's in charge. And I bring this up for us because I think it's a really valuable reminder for us to take our crowns and to cast them off. And if there is any area of your life that you're still trying to run or rule or dictate or govern, it is time to take that crown off. Cast it in front of the Lord and say, all right, God, you got this one. You run this one. You drive this one. You lead this one. Cast your crowns like these elders did before the Lord. And notice what causes them to do this. The worship of the creatures causes other people to worship. Worship is very contagious in the best possible way. This is something we want to catch, right? So this is, if you've been walking around just singing to the Lord, it's contagious. It causes others to either want to do that or to worship God in their own way. When we come together tonight to worship, that should be a contagious thing. When we're singing next to someone and we hear them sing, it makes us want to sing with them. If we see someone worship, it makes us want to worship. Hopefully when we come tonight to worship, we should walk out of here worshiping, hoping that others see that and want to do the exact same thing. Worship is a wonderfully contagious act. That's why it's a powerful witness for us to the world. Verse 11. You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. One thing that's powerful about the words of this song is it acknowledges that God is not just creator, but he's a sustainer. What they're singing is, God, you created everything and you're still on it. You're still sustaining everything. I think it's a good reminder for all of us. If there is an area of your life that you need God to add something, fuel, oil, life, energy, just whatever that looks like, have you laid that before God and said, God, this area of my life, I'm tired. I am so tired. I can't fix this. I'm out of fuel. I'm out of oil. I, can't, I just can't do this anymore. God is still sustaining if you lay that before him and say, God, I want you to sustain this area of my life. He is still on it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll, written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what this looks like, but I like this particular image for a couple of reasons. You notice it is full of writing, okay? Tons of writing. It is not in our language. And it has a whole bunch of those seals on it, okay? So what is the deal with the scroll and the seals? So a scroll was a very, very valuable thing. I'll try to put this in perspective. Because today, we live in a society that is going paperless, right? We all have too much paper, and so everyone's trying to go paperless to scan things in and to save them in a digital way because no one needs any more paper. The society that John wrote to was a paper-more society. They weren't trying to go paperless. They desperately wanted paper. They valued paper. And man, the people who had paper that they could just write things down, they had resources. So to find something, to see something that had something written on paper, that was a big deal to them. This is an incredibly valuable, if not invaluable, piece of paper. 
What was written on it? No one knows. Well, one knows, right? God knows. No one's sure. Some of the best theories are that just reflects God's plan for the world. I think we get to see as we turn the pages of Revelation a little bit of what might be on that scroll. But we're not exactly sure what was written on this scroll on both sides. But we do know a little bit more about those seven seals that are on the outside. Okay? Official documents were sealed back then. We don't do a lot of this today. Uh, kind of the best thing that we'll see, the closest thing we'll see, is if you ever had a document witnessed, or if you read a document notarized, it kind of makes it more official. It seals it. What they did is they put these seals on things to make them official. And specifically in Rome, one of the things they required is that a will had to have seven seals. So when you think about that, it kind of makes you look at that scroll a little differently, doesn't it? So if a will had seven seals, and a will is a document that goes into effect after the death of a person, is this document something that goes into effect after the death of a very important person, and that very important person being Jesus Christ? Let's keep reading verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So here, picture this mighty angel, this powerful angel, and the angel's acknowledging, I can't even open this. Who can open this? Everyone wants to know what's inside the scroll. What are these words? To put this in perspective for you guys, we are very, very blessed to open up this book, the Bible. Whether it's the physical Bible, the app on our phones, we are so blessed to be able to flip this thing open, to read it, to share from I want to give you two concrete examples so you understand how fortunate we are. If you were to go to China right now, you would find that this would be a problem. I have a friend of mine who is now back in China. She's a young lady in China, and she's now back home. And guys, she's scared. This young Chinese lady is scared to open up the Word of God. She is scared to meet with her Christian friends because the current ruler of China is cracking down on Christians and they're cracking down on the Word of God. One of the things that happened when the Bible was published in China, uh, not many of you guys noticed, but on the back of most books there's a scan. Okay, It looks like a bunch of lines. It's called an ISBN. And every book, when it's published, it gets one of these, an ISBN. That's happened kind of all over the world. It's kind of a universal code that this has been acknowledged as published. Well, when the Bible was published in China, it was not issued an ISBN. And there was one main reason for that. They wanted to leave it open so that when the government decided to pull back or retract the access to the Bible, they could do that without restraint. That's happening right now in China. This book has gotten more and more precious in that area. Let me give you another example. Right now, over one and a half billion people do not have the full Bible in their language. The whole thing. One and a half billion, that's with a B, cannot read this entire book. They just can't. They don't even have it. And yet we've got it sitting in front of us in our pews and on our phones, and we can access it and share it and make images of it. We are blessed, folks, to be able to look inside this book. Verses 3 and 4. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So picture John. He's, he's seen this scroll and like the angel, he's like, I just want to know what's inside. And he's so excited. He's so fired up that he's weeping because he just desperately wants to know. This is a great reminder to all of us that we are not worthy. We are not worthy Everyone wants to run the universe, but no one is capable of doing it. 
Think about it. How many times have you used the expression, if I were in charge? If we could just do things my way. And every single one of us, myself included, is wrong. We don't know, any single one of us, how to run this entire thing, God's creation. Only God does. The angel acknowledged it. John acknowledged it. We're not worthy to see inside this scroll. Only God is in charge. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Picture one of the elders like almost elbowing John. He's like, No, don't worry, don't worry. There is actually one who can open, and it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Really powerful image. What does it mean? So we talked about lions before, right? The king of beasts. It's a position of leadership, it's a ruler type of position. And he's describing a person, okay? And that image would have been familiar if you've looked at Hosea 5.14. For I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I myself will tear and go away. I'll carry off and no one shall rescue. This is a powerful lion. And in Hosea it was described that this will be God as he comes back. This will be Jesus. It's a prophecy about the coming of Jesus and what he's going to do for these people. God's people. And you'll notice it's some tough stuff, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah will do these three things according to this verse. He's a separator, a carrier, and a lone rescuer. He alone, okay? When I say separator, think about the words of Jesus, who said, I came not to unite, but to divide. And that division is simply this. You either believe in me, Jesus, or you do not. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's one who carries us. He picks us up, right? When we can't do it any further on our own, Jesus comes along and picks us up and he carries us. And he alone rescues us. It is only the name of Jesus that saves. Period. It is only Jesus that gives us access to God forever and our belief in him. Only Jesus saves. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. For this reason, he gets to get this scroll and open it. Verse 6, then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I am not even going to try to put up a picture of this. I don't care how many times I've read this verse. It's never a pretty picture. The lamb, Jesus, standing slaughtered, showing the marks of his crucifixion, even in heaven, still showing what he gave for you and for me. And for that reason, he gets access to this scroll. And he's described with some things, a bunch of sevens again, right? He's got these horns, seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits. The horns reflect his power. This is a slaughtered lamb, a sacrificed Jesus who is most certainly in charge. He's got the horns to show it. He's got all these eyes, and those eyes reflect the fullness of knowledge. He knows everything. And then he's got the seven spirits. We talked about that before. That's his eyes, his vision. He can see everything. So he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-seeing, which are usually things, if you think of it, used to describe God. And so now we have a description of Jesus as all-powerful, all-knowing, 
and all-seeing. He is in charge, and he is taking this scroll. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. Now, I love this for a couple reasons. One, we get an opportunity here to see two of the Trinity. Okay, it's not often we get to see this image of what God is and Jesus is, and they're right there. And we have God, he's on the throne, and he's holding this scroll. And then we've got Jesus, he's separate from God and yet connected to God. He's approaching God as the lamb, and he's going to take this scroll. We've got a relay, we've got a handoff, we've got a transfer of power. So we have God, the creator, the sustainer, the one in charge, who's got this scroll with the plan probably for the universe, and he's handing it to his son. He's saying, okay, son. You got this. You take it from here. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We have a harp here tonight for worship. That would be pretty fun. Um, Harps are things that were associated with worship and instruments of worship, and so were incense. Um, how many of you guys have ever gone to a church or place of worship and lit a candle or incense as part of a prayer? Okay, cool. Some of you had this experience. Yeah, it's something, you know, it's just a very ancient Christian tradition. You can do it, you cannot do it. We don't really do it here. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's something to this. When you light something for God, there's something about this process. I think that's why it's still done so, so frequently today. Uh, I had a spiritual director, amazing, amazing, wise, older lady, and I met with her every month, and when we would meet, we would come together in this room. We had these two chairs, and they kind of faced the other side of the room, and between those two chairs was a candle. And before we talked at all, she lit that candle. There was no pleasantries, no, hey, what's up, how's it going, how's the weather? We lit the candle, and we just looked at it for however long it took, a minute, a couple minutes, a few minutes. And what we were doing is we were reflecting that God was in the room with us. We actually watched the the flame on the candle move, remembering that the spirit, the breath, the wind of God was in the room. And it centered the entire discussion for the next hour. There's something to doing this, to lighting incense, to lighting a candle, remembering that God is with us. Verses 9 and 10. They sing a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered. And by your blood you ransomed for God. Saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Reflecting the fact that the Lamb is worthy for one reason, his sacrifice. Jesus is worthy to take this scroll and run, to be in charge because of what he gave up for you and for me. I think this is a great reminder for us and our witness Your greatest testimony to the world might be in what you give up. Not in what you get, not in what you earn, not in what you make, not in what you accomplish, but in what you don't. In what you say, well, I could do this, but I'm not. I'm going to give this up for the Lord. You think about this. This is reflected by many who practice Lent every year. So I'm going to give this up as I think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? What we give up. I know what this looks like for you guys. For some, it could be a career. We've got to give up that career. It could be a resource. It could be financial. It could be something else. It could be some activity or practice that God just doesn't want you doing. 
But your greatest testimony to the world could be in what you give up, in what you lay down, in what you don't take, if we do it in Jesus' name. And do you notice at the end of this verse something very cool is going to happen? It says we're going to reign on earth. Pretty sweet, right? You're like, finally, I've been waiting until the book of Revelation to find out I get to reign on earth. But you have to notice there's a condition on it, and it's right there in the verse. We get to reign on earth as long as we're serving God. We're his appointees. We're his designees to look over the earth, just like, by the way, Adam and Eve were told to do. As long as we're serving him, following him, following his word. And if we're not, we don't get to reign. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Here's this picture here of just, just a ton of angels. How many angels? How many of you heard of a Google Plexian? Only math nerd here? Good. I'm not, I'm not alone. Awesome. Google Plexian is the world's largest named number. Someone a lot smarter and apparently with a lot more free time came up with this. Okay, what is a Google Plexian? It's a one followed by a Googleplex of zeros. What's a Googleplex? Glad you asked. A Googleplex is a one followed by a Google of zeros, not to be confused with a search engine, right? And a Google is a one followed by 100 zeros. So I'm not a mathematician, but just picture like one with a lot of zeros times one with a lot of zeros times one with a lot of zeros times one with a lot of zeros. That's the world's largest number. Now picture that as angels. All of them angels, all worshiping God. Verse 12, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A Google Plexian of angels, all singing at the top of their lungs, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Just think about those words. You might have sung those words. Worthy is the lamb the one who was given in sacrifice for you and for me. And it was because of that sacrifice. And then they're joined, verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whoever that is, and in the sea, they're singing underwater, and all that is in them singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Everyone is singing. Everyone is singing and worshiping God. But I want you to notice the words of these songs. This worship is about God and God alone. It is not about us. There are far too many worship songs today that are more for the person singing them than they are for God. Just on my drive into church this morning, I had to turn the radio off. And I'm not going to name the station, and I'm not going to name the song because that's not what it's about. But that song was a bunch of I, 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 and I. And it wasn't a bunch of you, 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 and you. And that's what worship is about. And our worship team does, I think, an incredible job of reminding us this every single week. These are you songs. These are God songs. They're not about making us feel better. They're making God look glorious. And what's really cool is as we do that, as we make God look glorious, we actually get a benefit. It does help us to feel something. And it's exactly what we were designed and created to feel. That we are loving of a God that is outside of ourselves, that created us and is most certainly still in charge of our lives. So as we worship God, we actually feel better because we feel more and more like the servants that God created us to be. So as we worship him, we get to participate in a glorious, loving, wonderful, joyous 
way. Verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. So picture this. We got the creatures worshiping, and the elders actually fell down, kneeled down, and worshiped. What a testimony. Okay? So as the elders worshiped, everyone else got to see this. It's a great reminder for now. Think about this. Elders. This doesn't just have to be like elders of a church with a title. These are people who are older. These are people who are in charge. Our younger folks need to see this. This isn't just Roger and Nancy Younger, okay? (laughs) Elders. Us youngers need to see you worship. That means to me, those younger than me need to see me worship. They need to see us on our knees. Not saying to them, I've done it. I've accomplished it. Look at me. I've got the wrinkles. I can tell you the stories. That's not what they need to see. They need to see us on our knees worshiping God, saying, you know what I've learned? He's in charge. He's wise. Our younger generations need to see that and the folks that are older. And we get a chance to do that as we take communion. And when we prepare our hearts to take communion, I encourage you guys to get up anytime during the next few songs when you're ready and take the communion on your own. But as you prepare your heart, as you think about what you're doing, I want you to remember that image we learned about today. And that's of the lamb slaughtered with God, proving how much he loves us. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion in the next few songs. God, we thank you so much for this book, this revelation, these visions. We thank you that there was a door opened at a time that you invited John in. I'm grateful that John said yes and that he went. And I'm grateful for what you let us see. And it's you on the throne. It's your son forever marked with his sacrifice. And as we take communion, we remember that, that you, Jesus, gave your life for us. As we take the bread, we remember your body broken for us. As we take the cup of juice, we remember your blood poured out for us for once and for all, for everyone. And you want us all to partake, to be with you forever. We thank you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we do this and pray. Amen.